Coming to you from Beaumont, this is your house call. I had a patient who had walked in this week that was saying, I'm having some trouble hearing. And I was like, okay, like what's going on? Oh, it's just the right side. Okay. Hmm. Um, so I ended up looking in his ear and there was like this black kind of crawly looking thing in there and I was like hmm okay let's let's see what we can do I ended up you know uh, pulling it out and it was a cockroach nice and I was like wow and he was like oh my god and he goes well actually I didn't want to tell you that I felt like something was crawling in there instead I just thought you know my hearing's kind of gone and here it is right and I said okay well can you hear now he said yeah I can hear fine that's a good story I see this kind of stuff a lot not cockroaches in ears per se (laughs) but I it's pretty common to get the the oh by the way right mm-hmm. the, the famous oh by the way you know as the, you're walking out the door right, yeah the, the patient's here for you know a physical exam but oh by the way i've also got this thing and, and i find a lot of people are embarrassed to bring some stuff up at the office that frankly they probably shouldn't be embarrassed about so that's what we're going to talk about today on the podcast embarrassing symptoms or questions that people don't often like to go to their doctors for Hello and welcome to the Beaumont House Call Podcast. I'm Dr. Nick Gilpin. And I'm Dr. Asha Shahjahan. Our goal is to help you and your family live smarter and healthier lives. That's right. And so today it's all about embarrassing symptoms. So we gathered some common search items on embarrassing symptoms that people bring to their healthcare providers or doctors. Or that they're searching on the internet to try to figure it out so that they don't have to go to their doctors. And we're going to rip through a few of these one by one. So what do you got for us, Asha? Okay, so one of the things that I commonly see and happen to be on the internet search as well was excessive sweating. Mm -hmm. Um, People are very conscious about body odor. And I I get a lot of patients coming in with concerns about um, odor of their feet or um, just like excessive sweating. And so the first thing I usually think about is like, okay, is this something, I mean, sweating is a normal part of life. It's a way of your body cooling off and um, people excessively sweat when they're anxious or if there's a hormonal imbalance, like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of reasons why people sweat. Um, And there's a lot of different things that you can do about it. But I think when it becomes a concern is when there's excessive sweating, when maybe it's not hot outside or there really isn't a trigger for the sweating. And so that is called hyperhidrosis. And about 3% of our population has that. That's about 8 million Americans suffer from this. So it's not super common to have that, but I think a lot of people are concerned that that they may have this disorder. So there's a couple things I think that if you are sweating excessively that you might want to see your physician for to rule out, you know, prior. Like what? Like uh, diabetes, you know, hyperglycemia, hypoglycemia, um, having an infection, uh, hormone imbalance is a big one, especially for women if sure. they're postmenopausal. Um, and then anxiety is a big one. A lot of people, when they get anxious, it's their normal response that they start having some of the sweaty palms, etc. cetera. Um, thyroid issues is, a, is another reason to cause excessive sweating. Mm-hmm. So um, those are all things that can cause excessive sweating that can that you can correct, you know, if you correct uh, the hormone imbalance. You keyed in on something I think that's important, and that is that um, there are sort of organic causes of of excessive sweating and then there are i guess we'll call them more inorganic causes right Mm -hmm. by and large what i'm reading about um is that most excessive sweating is not due to some underlying pathology correct that this is probably more of an emotional response yep so 
that I think will put a lot of people's mind at ease because people might be thinking, oh my gosh, do I have cancer? Oh my gosh, do I have an infection? Is there something that is causing me to sweat like this? Ordinarily, it's just an exaggerated emotional response or an anxiety response. Yeah, and I think a lot of times that people do is they'll, for example, let's say excessive sweating um, underneath the armpits, they'll get deodorant and they'll say they've tried like four or five different kinds. Right. And it's like some people just produce more sweat than others. So it's like you can try an antiperspirant or you can see your doctor for a prescription strength to see if that helps. And you can actually put deodorant on your feet. Did you know that? You yeah. can put deodorant on your feet. So a lot of people um, have sweaty feet and they don't know what to do about it. But it's like you can put deodorant on your feet or antiperspirant on your feet and it can help a lot. So you go through the um, the algorithm, I guess, of, of using an antiperspirant, starting with something that's probably over the counter because that's what you're going to have easiest access to. To, and then mm-hmm. transitioning, if that doesn't work, to a prescription strength antiperspirant. And then what? What if that doesn't work? Where do you go from there? Yeah, and I think at that point, if things if that's not working, then it start, you start looking into some of the organic causes, like what are some of the things that could cause it? Um, but there are other things that you can do, like um, Botox injections yep, are pretty uh, popular, especially for people that get the sweaty palms, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it can interfere with your life if you're, you're going to a meeting and your hands are sweating when you're meeting someone for the first time. Um, so Botox injections are really good. There's actually anticholinergic drugs that you can take, which um, can kind of help block uh, the body's sweat triggers. Sure. So those are some things that you can do as well. Um, I think also just the simple things like spraying your shoes um, after you go for a run, before you go to a, on a run, like those kind of simple things. But um, at that point, if if it's still not helping you, then it's better to probably see a specialist regarding that, like a dermatologist. I would agree. And I also want to just throw in that there's one other kind of sweating that might be worth talking about, and that's night sweats. Mm. So I think I want to differentiate sort of the hyperhidrosis camp from the night sweats. Because night sweats, you know, if you're waking up in the middle of the night, your clothes are drenched, and this is happening night after night after night, that could really be a sign of something that needs to be investigated. This is something that I actually get referred to quite a bit in my infectious disease practice because one of the major causes of night sweats is infections. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's something that should generally not be ignored if you are having excessive night sweats. You should talk to your doctor about that. Right, where your sheets are drenched or your pillows drenched and that kind of thing. Exactly. Very good. All right, so let's see what else came up on our internet search. It's uh, constipation and gas fluctuants. This is... This, I see this quite a bit. I don't know if you see that at all in your practice. or Not, not something I see a ton of, maybe maybe a, a once in a while, but certainly something that, that people will ask about. I think that this is one of those questions that you might get from um, brave friends or family members yeah. uh, who might just corner you and say, hey, by the way, I've been having this issue. I get you know bloating all the time after I eat a meal or something like that. What's going on? Yeah, and I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm lactose intolerant. Right. Um, or they start doing the elimination diet or is it celiac disease or, or that kind of thing. But sometimes it's just plain old regular constipation from yeah. not having enough fiber. Well, let's talk about gas. So I think you keyed in on something right away, and that is that people tend to jump right to conclusions. I think that it, that's something I commonly see mm-hmm. is – We like our causes to be proximate, and and we like to say, well, I ate X and I got gas, therefore it must be X that caused this. Not necessarily the case. In fact, there's two ways that air is going to get into your intestines, right? Mm -hmm. You're either going to swallow it, so you're eating or you're chewing gum or you're drinking liquids and you're swallowing air. That's, by the way, the most common way that air gets into your intestines. Or 
your um, intestinal flora may be producing gas as a byproduct of metabolism. So it could be something that you eat, or it could actually be the way that you eat. Yeah, I think the way that you eat is big. Even like yes. when you think about babies and babies having excessive gas and burping and that mm-hmm. sort of thing, a lot of times it's because they're swallowing air or if you eat really fast and that kind of thing. And once that air gets in, it's got to get out, right? So it's you're either going to belch or you're going to fart. Yeah. You know, that's just, there's, <laughs> there's not really many other ways that air is going to get out of your body. So. Right, exactly. But even what about like irritable bowel, like where people have constipation and diarrhea? And the one thing I've noticed about irritable bowel is that it's very common. A lot of people have it where sometimes they they have diarrhea and then sometimes they have constipation and so they'll say well you know doc i've been taking a lot of fiber but now mm-hmm. i've got diarrhea um mm-hmm. or um whenever i get really nervous i get diarrhea and i think the thing that's important to know is that like everything's connected so like your nervous system does play a role on your gut and especially your large intestine and so if you happen to be nervous or have anxiety then it causes spasms in your large intestine which then in turn turns into problems with um, diarrhea oftentimes mm-hmm. and so um, a lot of times i tell patients that when it comes it might not be exactly what you're eating it might actually be your lifestyle like how much stress you have sure. um, how do you relieve your stress and uh, ways to reduce your stress and you'd be surprised how that affects your gut I think lifestyle modifications are, are an extremely important first step in the dance, right? Mm-hmm. Irritable bowel syndrome is a complicated disease because it's generally thought of as a disease of exclusion, right? You have excluded other organic causes of diarrhea or constipation. So you've, by the time you have landed on a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome, you've probably been to two or three doctors already and had a multitude of tests performed. Right, your colonoscopy. A colonoscopy yeah. Right, so you've gone through the whole dance to arrive at this destination, right? Right. But the lifestyle modification stuff is something that you can do yourself. So I was just recently reading about this concept of FODMAPs, specifically talking about irritable bowel syndrome and people that are prone to excessive bloating and flatulence. Mm. And I'd never heard of this before. I've actually never heard of it either. And um, so what FODMAP stands for, this series of very long words, fermentable oligo monosaccharides and polyols. Okay, can you say that again like five times fast? (laughs) Basically what these are is these are um, short-chain carbohydrates that your body does not do a very good job of digesting. And these are found in lots and lots of foods that you wouldn't ordinarily think of. So it's not as intuitive as, say, gluten, Mm -hmm. right? When you say gluten... People know gluten's a binder. They know where it's found. It's found in grains, et cetera, et cetera. FODMAPs are found in all different kinds of fruits and vegetables and other things. So, for example, apples, right? An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Right. Apples happen to be one of those foods that are high in FODMAPs. So if you have a situation where you're not able to really break these FODMAPs down, eating apples or some of those types of foods may trigger excessive gas and bloating for you. So do you think it's good for a, a patient to have a food diary and maybe look at the spot map and see what is it that they're consuming in that map? Or? I think so. So yeah. like, like with anything else, I mean, if you can eat all these foods and they don't give you any problems, then you don't have anything to worry about. But if right. you find yourself getting excessive bloating or constipation or diarrhea, yeah, I think you do have to be more mindful of these. So you as a primary care doctor, I'm sure that that's right. one of the things you would task a patient with. You'd say, okay, let's start taking a food diary. Exactly. And see where this goes. Yeah, before jumping to getting a colonoscopy per se, that's one of the things I like to do is keep a food diary of when you have diarrhea, when you have constipation, what you ate that day. Um, 
and just sort of kind of go through that and see see what causes it. And I think the same thing with constipation. A lot of people um, will go straight for laxatives, mm. and there's a lot of natural laxatives that you can take, you know, like having just chia seeds or berries, flax seeds, those kinds of things, um, leafy greens. So it's like try to modify your diet, like the easy stuff, modify your diet first and see if there can be a change um, before jumping to, to the bigger um, things that people tend to get scared of. Want to move on to the next one? Yes. Oh, okay. This is a good one. So, <laughs> what do you got? Bad breath. Okay. Okay. Bad breath. Are you, trying to, are you trying to tell me something right now? <laughs> you didn't have enough gum today, <laughs> but now you're going to get gas from chewing the gum, and it's going to cause problems. Um, but when I say bad breath, it's not like the bad breath of like you know you take mints and mouthwashes and and all of these products and you still have bad breath, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So people are like, "What is going on, Doc? Like I've got bad breath and." Um, they say, oh, my, do- uh, my dentist says I don't have gingivitis, so I don't know what's causing the bad breath mm-hmm. and infectious disease. I'm sure you see a lot of that, too. I do. Um, as a matter of fact, I have had a few patients over the years that have come to me with this as their primary complaint. They've been told maybe that they might have a tongue infection, like thrush or something like mm-hmm. that, and they think that that might be the cause. I think important to, to, to distinguish right off the bat is does the person actually have bad breath? Because there's a significant pe- amount of people out there that think that they might have bad breath, mm-hmm. but they don't really clinically have bad breath, right? So that is sort of its own pseudo condition that I think needs to be distinguished from real bad breath. Right. Once you get to real bad breath, then I think of the majority of, of cases of quote unquote real bad breath or real halitosis are caused by disorders of the mouth, the teeth, and the gums. Gingivitis, teeth that have not been cleaned or flossed or, you know, trapped food, um, or or the the back of the tongue is an area that also can trap food, and that's where most of the bad breath comes from. And then you know what's interesting is a lot of people that have chronic sinuses can also have bad breath as well. So a lot of times people go to their dentist and they don't think about you know, possibly having to see an ENT for like what could be going on in the sinus sinus cavities. Um, the other thing are just things like tobacco smoking. You know, right. that can cause chronic bad breath. And then dry mouth is a big one. So, you know, when people wake up, they have that morning breath. It's because, you know, they might sleep with their mouth open or like overnight their mouth is very dry. Right. And so if you're on medications that cause dry mouth, then you can have um, bad breath. Or just imp- improving the amount of water that you drink can actually help out with that as well. Yeah, excellent points. I I think that the initial evaluation of someone who has truly bad breath um, is is a trip to the dentist. Mm -hmm. I think that that's generally the first step. And then if if you've tried the, um, you know, the the lifestyle modifications, the the brushing, the flossing, um, the good oral care, and you're still having problems with bad breath, then I think the next step would be uh, a visit to an ear, nose, and throat doctor. Yeah, and then, or even sometimes a gastroenterologist, because if you've got really bad GERD, like acid reflux, that sure. can also cause bad breath. And sometimes people aren't sy- symptomatic per se with pain or burning, but they have the bad um, the bad breath um, from the acid reflux. So if they start controlling their diet in terms of like lowering their caffeine and spicy foods, then they can uh, improve that as well. Excellent. Any more topics? Let's talk about this one is hair loss. I see in my clinic a lot of people have trouble talking about hair loss, especially women. It's a pretty charged topic, right? I mean, we put a lot of value in, in appearance, and, and hair certainly plays a vital role in that for a lot of people. So Yeah, and the thing is there is a natural part of 
um, aging where you will lose hair. Mm -hmm. Like when your hormones change, you'll lose hair. I mean, when I shower and I like pull out, I got tons of hair that comes out too. But there's a difference between alopecia, which is, you know, like a actual balding of the scalp where you have patches of no hair growth whatsoever. And then just like your hair falling out, like stress can cause your hair to fall out. Your, um, your thyroid hormone can cause hair to fall out. Being in menopause, like all of those things can cause hair loss. And a lot of women start freaking out because they're like, oh my God, I don't want to go bald. Um, Very good point. But there's a couple of things that I think that you can do for that, what I call benign hair loss, where you're just losing more hair and you're not necessarily balding per se. Um, and that, again, goes back to your diet. It's like eating more proteins. Uh, like egg whites are great. There's even like some remedies of actually putting egg whites in your hair. Um, Interesting. And in your scalp because it's rich in really good proteins that are good for your hair. Is it biotin? Is that the yeah. one that's supposed to be good? Yeah. Absolutely. Biotin's really good. So vitamins like vitamin D is really important for hair growth. Um, and then B12. So if you're a vegan or you're not getting enough uh, B12 in your diet, that can also cause hair loss. So if you're having like excessive hair loss that you're noticing, you might want to, you know, check your diet, see what you're eating. But then also you can get your vitamin levels checked and your hormone levels. And then one thing that a lot of women have that they don't realize is related to hair loss is uh, low iron. Hmm. So if you have a heavy menstrual cycle and your iron levels are low, um, just taking iron supplements might actually help uh, with your hair growth. So many people think about, uh, you know, thyroid, but they often forget about checking the iron levels as well. I read that it's normal to lose between 50 and 150 hairs per day. Yeah, I hope so, because I think I lose about 150 which sounds, per day. I mean, which sounds like a really high amount, right? So if you think of if you lost 150 hairs it, instantly, you would notice it, right? But over the course of a day, you're probably not going to notice losing 150. Yeah. And over time it does grow back. You know, that's the thing. And I think scalp health is really important. So like if you're not taking care of your scalp, like exfoliators for the scalp, you know, we do that for our skin. Um, But really taking care of your scalp with making sure you have good shampoos and conditioners um, that that can also help as well. Um, And then this is actually really funny. A lot of people will say like, uh, my mom used to say this, like I'd always put my hair up in a a tight bun when I was like Mm. studying. Mm -hmm. And she'd be like, put your hair down or your hair is going to fall out. And I was like, is that for real? Like if you have a tight ponytail or a tight bun. Um, But it's true. It Mm -hmm. does. So it's like, okay, maybe don't sleep with your hair tied up so tight. So good point. But then when we talk about alopecia, that's different. And that's when you might need to see a dermatologist. You might need to have steroid injections. You might need to take medications um, to help with the hair growth to, to come back. Yeah, I'm glad you weaved that in there because I think you can, you can learn a lot from just talking to a patient about their hair loss, about the pattern and the timing. And you might be able to solve the mystery just from taking a good history. Right. But I think if you can't get to the bottom of it by just asking the questions, a dermatologist and a biopsy is going to be an important next step. Yep, absolutely. And I think a lot of people try to wait it out, you know. Mm. Um, but of course. You know, if, if uh, it's happening, it's not a bad idea to get a consult. So how does hair loss typically come up in a visit? Is this typically a, someone coming to you with a scheduled appointment that wants to talk about hair loss, or is this typically an oh-by-the-way sort of thing that comes up in the appointment? Um, I think it's mixed. It depends. So I feel like um, the older females that are coming in postmenopausal, they tend to say, okay, I'm going through menopause. I've got hot flashes. My hair is falling out. This is all that's happening. They start Mm -hmm. listing all their symptoms. I feel like the younger women kind of dance around it a little bit. They might, you know, come in for something else. And then it's, oh, by the way, I've been really stressed. And I've noticed like clumps of hair coming out in the shower. Um, You know, my boyfriend's complaining about it or, you know, someone else has noticed it. 
Um, and that comes up in that way. So if it's en- enough to create anxiety in you, it's certainly enough to bring up to your physician. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, it's like there's no like taboo topic for a doctor. Like we've seen a lot of lot of crazy things oh, yeah. over time. Uh, and so like nothing's really surprising. Like I've had a couple of patients that have come to me saying like, oh, you've probably never seen this before. Um, and it's like, chances are, if you're a doctor trained at a level one trauma center, they've seen it. Right, so right, yeah. um, nothing to be too embarrassed about. Okay, so our last topic that we have today is itchy things below the belt. Itchy, rashy, bumpy things below the belt. Yes, the things that people, it's just an area that people are uncomfortable coming in to talk to their doctor about, I think. First, let's talk about STDs, right? Mm-hmm. So STDs, or I guess nowadays we're calling them STIs. Sexually transmitted infections as opposed to a disease. Yep. So this probably should be its own podcast. I think this is a mountain of a topic, but, mm-hmm. but we can talk about a few things right away and we can categorize things. So the way that I teach residents and medical students and, and talk to patients about STIs is put them in two camps. You've got lesions, things that cause lumps and bumps and sores, and you've got things that typically cause discharges. So the things that cause lesions, lumps, bumps, and sores are things like syphilis, herpes, HPV, which causes genital warts. Certain types of chlamydia can cause lesions. And then you have the things that cause discharges, and that would be your chlamydia, your gonorrhea, trichomonas, and then BV and yeast infections. Yeah, can we talk about, let's talk about the BV and yeast infections a little bit, because that's really common. We got to talk about BV and yeast infections. So I think that this is one of the things that I see um, young adult female patients um, quite frequently in my practice. Yeah, I do as well. Mm -hmm. Yep, recurrent BV and recurrent yeast infections. BV stands for bacterial vaginosis. Yeah, so what this is... um, is a it's it's a type of bacteria that um, changes the flora of the vagina and causes a discharge that's uncomfortable and and frankly smelly and what it, it fundamentally just comes from an alteration in what the normal flora should be the normal flora should be leaning more towards lactobacillus which is a fairly benign bacteria that doesn't cause a lot of problems. So it's more like clear discharge, um, not too heavy. There should not usually be like a fishy odor to it. And when when that flora starts to transition more towards the BV, then you get the yellowish discharge. It can be foul smelling. It can sometimes smell fishy. Um, And it can wet your underwear as well. A lot of women come in saying like it's like heavy discharge. Yep. 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 And it can be uncomfortable. So that's typically the launch point for someone who comes in with BV. I think it's important to mention that BV and vaginal yeast infections are not in and of themselves, I I don't consider them to be sexually transmitted infections, not in the way that gonorrhea or chlamydia is. Right. They don't spread from one to another. Right. But there can be an association in sexual activity. So you might find women who say, I always get a yeast infection after sex. Or I always find that my BV tends to flare up after sexual intercourse. Could it be my partner? Not necessarily. It could just be that the the act of of being sexually active is altering your flora in such a way, and it's yeah. predisposing you. And to sometimes the condoms as well can cause issues with Excellent yeast infections. Point. So, Excellent point. Uh, that's something to think about. And then an- taking antibiotics can cause yeast in- yeast infections. That's so. the classic one, right? So I think there's a lot of women out there who could relate to this. You know, you take an antibiotic for a urinary tract infection or a sinus infection, and then you know a week later you get a yeast infection, and you have to take a, 
uh, a dose of Diflucan to get rid of that. So mm-hmm. that's a very, very common thing that, that people should not be ashamed to talk to their doctors about at all. Yeah. Now, when you mentioned bumps and, you know, that kind of thing, and mm-hmm. I think there are some common bumps that happen that are not like sexually transmitted infections that Absolutely. people are so concerned about. Like I see that a lot in my office if they'll say, oh my gosh, I've had the same partner for the past five years, but now I've got this bump down there and it ends up being like a razor bump yep. or um, something really benign. Um, what are some of the things that you've seen that are pretty common that are relatively benign? So you, you hit the big one there. I think razor bumps um, or, you know, little irritated hair follicles, people mm-hmm. commonly will mistake those for genital herpes or something else, and it can cause a just a massive, massive amount of anxiety. Yeah. There are other rashes in the groin area that are not sexually transmitted infections. Typically, men get jock itch, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is a type of, uh, of skin fungus. It's very benign. It's very treatable with a topical antifungal. Um, Women can get growths, cysts, basically, called mm-hmm. Bartholin cysts. Um, there's one on either side of the labia that they can, you know, get blocked up and swell, and they can be painful, and they can look like STDs if you're, if you're not aware of what they are. So mm-hmm. that's another thing I see quite a bit. Yeah, I think uh, yeast infections are a big deal, skin yeast infections, because mm-hmm. just like babies get diaper rash, like it, in between um, like your thighs or sometimes it, for women in between their breasts, they can get rashes and um, not realizing that it's it's just a yeast infection and you can take a topical cream that can clear that up. I think, remember, I think I sent you a patient actually who was very concerned about a lesion um, in his private area. And to be honest, it looked different than normal. And I was, I was I kept looking at it. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. And then his girlfriend was like yelling at him in, in, yeah. the, in the room, like, if you cheated on me, it's, it's over. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Um, and so I think I had I, given him um, a cream, and it wasn't working. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to send him over to Nick. Sure. Nick will take a look at it and see uh, what can be done. And it ended up, I think, what was it? it ended up just being a yeast infection or yeah. something. So, you know, there's typically a stepwise approach to these. Like, so, so BV and, va- and, and vaginal yeast infections can be unbelievably frustrating. They, they can have a recurrent, relapsing sort of nature to them. Mm-hmm. And, and it's it, very common. And it's extremely frustrating. So don't be ashamed to talk to your doctor about this. You don't have to, you know, hide in the shadows. I think that this is a very common thing, and it's a very treatable thing. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with STDs. I mean, for crying out loud, just talk to your doctor. I know you're embarrassed, but this is what we do. Right. And honestly, you know, STDs, if untreated, can be pretty serious. You know, right. for women, they can lead to infertility problems. Same thing for men. Um, and then, of course, we always got to think about HIV, right? If you right. have one STD, if you have gonorrhea or chlamydia... You could have others. Exactly. There could be other STDs lurking in the in the darkness, too. So we got to look for all that stuff. Yeah, and I think it's just having the open communication, being able to say, this is what's going on, and right. know that there's, like, no judgment on the other side. No. Like, like I said, we've seen a lot of things, experienced a lot of things, and so it's like uh, the chances that you shock your doctor <laughs> is... Is, is pretty low. Yeah, and, and, and let's not forget, you know, there's, there, your confidentiality is protected, right? Mm-hmm. You know, your, you know, patient doctor communications are confidential. You know, we're not out there, you know, posting on social media, you know, you're not going to believe this patient I saw today. It's, it just doesn't work that way. I think that right. we approach these with seriousness and we want to make sure that people are getting the right care. Right. And also with teenagers too, a lot of people are afraid to come in thinking that, you know, maybe my parents going to find out in some way. And that's like what you talk to with your doctor is absolutely confidential. So you don't have to worry about, you know, getting a report to your parents about like having an STI. Excellent point.
Well, I think that's about all the information we have time for today. Asha, thanks for going through those questions. Yeah, thanks, Nick. I think I, I think hopefully we've helped a lot of people realize that they're not alone out there in, in some of these embarrassing symptoms. It's really common, and that's, that's what we're here for as healthcare providers. Um, there's no topic that's taboo. And as your doctor, if we know what's going on, we can help you and advocate for you. I totally agree. That's That would be my big takeaway here is that you shouldn't be ashamed to ask these questions. These are questions that we face on a regular basis. And if there are certain questions that are just burning and you uh, you want to bring those questions to us, then you can send your questions to podcast at beaumont.org. And mm-hmm. Asha and I will be happy to take a look and get back to you on that. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us on the Beaumont House Call. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave us a review. We're always looking forward to your feedback. Continue your journey to living a smarter, healthier life. Visit Beaumont.org slash podcast to access information and resources related to today's podcast.